0: Greetings and welcome back to episode number four in the series, What is Church? This is episode number four, and we are working our way through eight different values that I've written for a recent plant, uh, church that I've been involved with, uh, helping plant a, for lack of better terms, a, a house church-like church. And it, I, I hesitate saying house church. I think I've talked about this before. I don't, I don't want to... Sometimes house churches can... Uh, get off the rails a little bit, or they can become hypercritical of the so-called institutional church, or they can become very anti-building, and that's not what we want to do at all. We want to come alongside and join arms with what God is doing in this wonderful city of Boise, with the other churches and, and ministries in, in the valley. This is not a reactionary church plant. It is uh, uh, another way of of doing church. That is, it is quite different, and that's what we're talking about in this series. We're talking about things that are some values that are driving this church. And many of these values may end up producing a different kind of church. So last week we talked about uh, reproducing versus church growth, reproducing versus church growth. And we also talked about our, another value that uh, we want to be relationally driven, relationally driven. And those two go hand in hand. That's why I talked about them together. We want to reproduce small gatherings so that the primary rhythm of church of gathering is small and intimate and relationally driven. We will also have large gatherings as we or if we uh, end up becoming too big for our one setting, we will not just buy a building or, you know, um, become a big church with a big service and start hiring tons of people. Rather than that, we will simply reproduce into another small group. And keep doing that indefinitely so that the primary rhythm is a bunch of, you know, small gatherings um, that don't cost anything to run. They're very simple. Uh, I hope that they're meaningful. We want the gathering to be incredibly meaningful. Not just in the quote-unquote service of teaching and worship and announcements or whatever, but in the relational time together. I mean, when when we meet, we just met last Sunday and... You know, half of I would say half of our time is just simply hanging out. Uh, you know, people show up around ten, um, they leave around ah, maybe like twelve thirty, ish. That's usually when we kind of end up leaving. Uh, some people stay till like six, seven, eight at night. The, we have amazing hosts that say, "Hey, look, we you can stay as long as you want. You never have to leave our house. In fact, sometimes they leave the house and there's still people um, hanging out at their house. It's really." funny actually the, a couple of weeks ago we got together with the host for lunch afterward and they said oh yeah there's still tons of people at our house <laughs> and we were out having lunch you know hanging out just us as couples and i think that's so cool so yeah that's what we're doing we're doing this uh, church plant thing so uh tr- value number five the value i want to talk about today is participatory versus performance now this is going to bleed over into well several of the other values really uh, especially the last two that we want to be relationally driven, um, but participatory versus performance. What I want is a church gathering where everybody feels the freedom and even is encouraged to participate in some way, what, whether it's through um, you know a praying or uh, g- giving you know uh, g- giving a word over the Eucharist or. Um, or praying for some, praying for somebody else, or sharing a prayer request, or or you know our teaching is very dialogical. So I I'm trying to incorporate you know a lot of different voices in the dialogue. Now there is still a leader. I'm one of the two leaders in the church, and there are still teachers who are guiding, who are doing the teaching. But we want the teaching to be very interactive and responsive. As you know, I spent ten years as a as a professor and. One of the worst ways to be a professor is simply to sit there and lecture, especially if there's like 30 people in your classroom. Like one of the best ways for people to learn, to engage in material is to take ownership of it and to engage it and process it and talk through it and push back and ask hard questions and be okay if the teacher says, you know what, that's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. Let's together try to figure this out. Now, when I say participation, I'm talking about participation in the gathering and also in the church. And I just, some of you are saying, well, isn't that redundant? You just said the same thing twice. Uh, no, I didn't. <laughs> because church cannot be reduced to the gathering. Church is the corporate people of God. We are, we are the church. We are the church. We embody the church. We gather as a church, but we don't go to church um, to gather We are the church who gathers. You see the difference? So the gathering, the time when the church, this local church, we don't have a name yet. I don't know if we ever will. We we should probably get a name at some point, but right now it's just, we're going to to gather together. (laughs) It's more of a verb than a noun. So when when we gather together, that is part of what the church does, but that can't be reduced to church as a whole. Church transcends the few hours we are together on Sunday. So what I want... In this church is everybody to be participating, yes, in the gathering, in the few hours that we are together, but also in the church as a whole, the movement, the mission, the needs, the ministries, the relationships and so on and so forth. I want people to be, you know, even if they're quiet on Sunday morning, that they are very loud in their actions uh, throughout the week, even if not with their voices. So, again, going back to our gathering, we really want to value the, I mean, so, sorry, sorry. When I talk about participation at the gathering, part of our gathering, too, is simply hanging out. So when, we, when people show up at 10, we typically hang out for, I don't know, what, 15 minutes to a half hour. Then we actually gather together. We sing a few songs of worship. I've been doing these things where I kind of interview people, where I just you know call out somebody randomly without any preparation in in the audience and say, "Hey, come up here and let's just get to know you a little bit and ask them a ton of questions." Have other people ask them questions. Um, I've I've been trying to do that every week. Last week we had a couple um, uh, people who are being sent out to Jordan. They're moving to Jordan in a couple weeks and they're doing some amazing ministries out there. So I, you know, talked with them and what their needs were and. Uh, we, we can we be praying for them. Then we laid hands and prayed over them. And, and they're not even part of our church. They're actually part of another church. But we invited them to be part of us for that Sunday. Um, so that the, the gathering is really oh. So after we get to know people, then we do uh, we we've been teaching through the values. And a lot of what you're hearing here is what we've been talking through. And you know then we pray some more. And then we do some announcements. We ask how people are doing. And we just want the whole thing to be like a big family gathering where there is leadership, and we're going to talk about that in a second, Um, but everybody who is a believer has the spirit of the creator of the universe in them. They have power that needs to be harnessed and valued and released. And a lot of people just don't have, I think that they assume that the leaders have kind of a a bigger spirit, uh, more of the Holy Spirit than they do, and they have less or their gifts aren't as valuable. And it seems like just the, the way at least... Some people have gone about church that that's been kind of implicitly pounded, pounded into them. Um, we don't want to do that. We want to release people in the gifts that God has given them. Let's go back to why we are doing this, making it about participation. Let's, let's go back to the first century and let's just talk about the first century church. And um, we always have to distinguish between the sort of is and the ought. Or the description of the church and the prescription of the church meaning. There are some things and that the church did in the first century, some ways it existed that were just the cultural norm of that day and aren't necessarily prescriptive or, or um, you know, commanded for all churches of all time. Um, but then I do think there are also rhythms and principles and values that the early church had. That should carry over to today. So, I, so I'm, I'm very, mu- I very much appreciate that tension. I don't want to say, oh, first century church, let's just do it just like that, just without thinking through the distinction between description, describing what the church did, and prescription, where the church is actually, um, or the New Testament is actually uh, projecting a vision of what all churches should should do. But in the first century, when people were getting saved, um, I mean, the very first believers gathered at at the synagogue, right? Because first converts were Jews and they weren't like, you know, Jesus wasn't trying to start a new religion, um, but to proclaim, you know, the messianic fulfillment or, you know, next step, if you will, of, of the religion that has been going on from the garden, the garden of Eden. So when the early converts, most, most of whom were Jews or Gentile proselytes, converts to Judaism, when they got saved or whatever, I mean, they were in the synagogue, Uh, but pretty early on, um, you know, Judaism and, and what was becoming the way or Christianity started to uh, started to go its own ways, if you will. I mean, I mean, in some cases they were kicked out of the synagogue, right? Remember throughout the book of Acts, Paul keeps going into synagogues and he's getting kicked out and Jesus, I mean, had, had a tough time at a few synagogues that he preached at too. So when Christianity could no longer meet at synagogues, the question is, where could they meet? Well, First century Rome the empire Roman Empire was um, it was actually more tolerant of religions th- uh, than some people think um, they they were you know you can practice different religions as long as it didn't kind of upset the fabric of the empire as long as, long as it didn't upset the social hierarchy and challenge the elites and do whatever if you just want to like you know practice your religion over here then that's fine that, that's we're not going to we're not going to um yeah, we're going to be okay with it. We're going to allow that. But when, so when Christianity existed, it was still under the umbrella of Judaism. It was recognized as a sect of Judaism by the Roman empire. When it started to go its own way, it was kind of out in no man's land a little bit. It didn't have the sort of covering of Judaism. And so they couldn't, actually have like public spaces to meet in. And plus a lot of the believers were poor. A lot of people were poor. So, I mean, getting a public space to meet in would have been expensive, but it also was not really legal. Like they could, they weren't recognized as a distinct religion that could have public meeting space. So they ended up meeting in the homes of wealthy Christians. Most Christians had t- teeny tiny homes. that can hold just barely like a family. So they couldn't hold a whole Church, They couldn't hold 20, 30 people. Um, but there were a few wealthy Christians in every city that had homes big enough to hold uh, the entire church. Now, when I, th- when I say church, you, I mean, think like 20 to 50 people. Like 50 people would have been on, on a large size of, of a first century church, and, and most of them would have been 20, 30 people. Um, and some cities had several of these communities in it. So like if you read Romans 16, we can identify, I think, about Five different home churches that were, that constituted the church at Rome, the Roman church. So it was a network of small, small gatherings. Now, we don't know a lot about what these gatherings looked like. They probably structured their quote unquote order of service. Again, I don't think it was that formal, Um, but the practices that they did in early church gatherings probably reflected a lot of the same practices in the synagogue. You know, in the synagogue, you know, people would get together for worship, for prayer, for uh, reading, um, for a meal. And so uh, the early church most probably adopted those practices as well. And in the, in the few passages where we get a glimpse into early church gatherings, um, it does seem like they more or less reflected the general sort of themes of synagogue gatherings. Now, when w- one of the most interesting pictures of the church we get is in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, especially chapters 12 and 14. And I say interesting because, as you probably know, the Corinthian church was an absolute mess. It was a, morally, it was a mess, okay? But they still gathered as a church like any other church would have. And so we do have, so even though morally it was kind of messed up and needed a lot of correction, Paul had a lot of pretty hard things to tell them in, uh, especially first Corinthians. But what we see is that in the gatherings, they were participatory. They, they don't look, they didn't look like the gather, the type of churches that we have today. Now, again, I'm not saying one is necessarily right. And one is necessarily wrong just because, well, I mean, if fast forward to today, most church gatherings are much larger than the small house churches of the first century um and and so you know you can't it, it makes it very difficult to be uh participatory and it makes it easier to have kind of one teacher teaching people and it makes you know dialogue during the teaching time to be a bit more difficult um, and when things are bigger, they do require more organization, which requires you know, um, us to think through structure and, and, um, offices and different people, staff members and so on and so forth and buildings and and whatever. So, um, I'm not saying those are all good or bad. I'm just saying it's a, it's a departure from the way they did church in the first century, primarily because of the size, because of the size, we now have buildings, because we can have buildings, we have buildings and and, you know, it's hard to cram hundreds of people into one house church. <laughs> and so, you know, our structure looks looks quite different. But in the first century, the the gatherings were very small. They did gather in homes. And they were, according to the little window we have in First Corinthians 12 and 14, they were participatory. We see people using their gifts. And, so, you know, Paul has to kind of correct them. Correct them in how they're using their gifts. You know, they're they're speaking in tongues or languages without an interpretation, and they're not waiting for each other. And they're you know the way they do the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, in First Corinthians 11 is you know wealthy believers were taking it eating before the poor believers and weren't waiting for the poor believers to show up because wealthy believers would get off work a lot earlier or didn't work at all, and so they can kind of start the meal around two, and and poor poorer believers would you know, work until the sun goes down and they would show up and all the good food was eaten. And anyway, it was a big, it was a big mess. Um, I mean, there's several messes in the Corinthian church, but again, what we see is we do see people using their gifts. So first Corinthians 12, Paul compares the church to, he calls it the body of Christ. And he is really trying to correct this sort of higher hierarchy of gifts. I mean, his big point in 1 Corinthians 12 and really spelling out uh, the whole metaphor of the church being the body of Christ, the, the whole driving point is that diversity of gifts should foster unity, not cause disunity. And one way to do that is to make sure you don't have a hierarchy of, well, a hierarchy of gifts in the sense that you, look down upon people who have seemingly um, weaker gifts than those who have seemingly stronger gifts. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, but even more, or sorry, let me go back to 21. So the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Or again, the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. But even more, watch this, even more, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are necessary. And those parts of the body that we think are less honorable, we clothe these with greater honor and our unpresentable parts have a better presentation, but our presentable parts have no need of clothing. Instead, God has put the body together, giving, watch this, greater honor to the less honorable. When he says less honorable, I think he's you know, going back to verse 23, when he says that those gifts that we think are less honorable, he's not actually calling them less honorable. He's just playing into the mindset that we think some gifts gifts are less honorable. So we should give greater honor to honor, uh, to less honorable gifts so that there would be no division in the body, but that the members would have the same concern for each other. So one of my growing passions in trying to create a faithful church is that we would do that <laughs> i want to do that i want when i when i read about how the church gathered like i want to do that i want to i want somehow honor gifts that people consider less honorable. It's easy, to, it's easy to honor the one with the good teaching skills or the amazing musician on stage and say, man, that person's really being used by God, and they are being used by God. There's, there's, the goal is not to, to diminish those gifts, but to elevate the gifts that we think are less honorable. Like, I want to do that. What would it look like to do that? What would it look like to create a type of church gathering where gifts that seem to be less honorable are actually given more honor? How can we create a gathering where people who think that they have nothing to contribute are actually empowered and and released because they have the Spirit of God in them? How can we make this gathering to to where it can't function right if the people with the so-called less honorable gifts don't show up? Because I haven't, I haven't really experienced that too much. Like I haven't, you know, been in a, a church environment where if people with less honorable gifts don't show up to the church service, then the church service just it ain't going to go right. Like it's just going to be not not as powerful. It's not going to be as organic. Not going to be as effective because it's missing parts of the body. And if we take Paul's metaphor seriously. Um, if you're a little toe or a big toe or an ear or an eye, like when no matter what part of the body you are, you play a vital role for the health of the body, which is precisely his point. So even if you are a, I don't know, let's just say a, a big toe and you're not seen by everybody and you don't talk and and you don't contribute to hearing. But my goodness, if you don't have a big toe, that's going to affect the posture and the health of the body as a whole. Like what if we did that? What if we did that as a church? What if we created a church to where if the big toe doesn't show up, it ain't going to go right. Where everybody is valued equally, equally valued, and their gifts are cherished. So, so we're not talent-driven or performance-driven. This is the whole value of participatory participatory versus performance. I don't want to depend on really good performers to make the gathering effective and a good uh, experience for people. I want it to be a place where a, a diversity of gifts can be used. Now, when we read the Corinthian letters, it does feel very democratic. A lot of people jumping in and participating. Now, when we get to the end of Paul's letters in First, Second Timothy and Titus, we do see more of an emphasis on on leadership. The Corinthian Church. I mean, I, I assume there was leadership, but it seems very, very kind of congregational, if you will, very, very democratic, very much kind of like I don't want to say free for all, but you know, you don't get the sense that you have, you know, um, you know, a couple of leaders at the top kind of doing everything. And maybe part of the problem was lack of leadership. So you know, again, the Corinthian Church. We should not glorify the the, the churches as a whole. I think there's a lot of problems in the church, but it does give us a window into how early church churches gathered. Now, when we get to, again, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, we see more of a concern of Paul in establishing leadership. He tells Titus and Titus 1, you know, I, I left you on the island of Crete to appoint elders in in, a, in every uh, city on the island. And 1 Timothy uh, 3 and Titus 1 also gives criteria for leadership. And there is this huge emphasis on, um, you know, making sure you know you uh, rebuke bad leadership and people spreading false doctrine and 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 you raise up solid leadership people who fit qualifications for leadership so he, here's the tension i'm wrestling with is is how do you cultivate group or church participation to where it's not this top down couple gifted people doing everything how do you cultivate that sense of participation and yet still uh respect and promote solid leadership. And I, th- I think there's a way to do that. I just think that we have to keep that in intention. So, um and and let me say I by no by no means am I saying that we are just nailing this. I mean, goodness, we're like 2 months old and we're going to run into all kinds of uh bumps and hiccups and problems and and, and, you know, times are like, oh, my gosh, we're not going to do that again. Or, man, you know, this person needs to be talked to or whatever. Like, it's it's going to be absolutely messy. So in no way am I envisioning some perfect, you know, fluffy, idealistic, you know, gathering where everybody's happy and hunky-dory and getting along perfectly and all that. That's not the point. Families are messy. The point is it needs to be a family. It needs to be people who are committed to each other and where relationships, authentic relationships are valued highly in in a sense that if we gather together and you're not engaging in people on a relational level, you're not gathering well. Remember we talked about this uh, last week where people, I think at church, we should be living out the one another's, like we should be forgiving each other and loving each other and bearing each other's burden so anyway that's our fifth value participatory versus performance we're going to do probably two more of these next week we're going to talk about diversity and integration Uh, and then the last value we're going to talk about is theological being theologically orthodox and also theologically generous i can't wait for that one that's going to be real raw so we'll see you next time